Turn back with me, if you would, to the letter of 1 Timothy. The letter of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 8 through 15. Now, if we were uh, trying to keep people happy by how we taught and what we taught, if we were trying to uh, please the most folks all the time, we probably wouldn't ever teach this text that we're about to walk through this morning. Um, Or if we taught it, we sure would be careful to teach it in a way that's keeping up with the culture of our day and the things that are going on in our culture today. And so this is one of the main reasons that we preach through Scripture, as we call it, expositionally, that we go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through letters and books of the Bible, and so that we don't skip difficult text like this one. Because when we skip difficult text like this one, we leave the interpretation of text like this out there. And we don't effort here to understand them well and to understand them faithfully and to apply them to our lives and to the life of the church. Uh, And so we also preach and teach expositionally so that we faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God, including difficult texts like this, and then probably most especially so that when we come to a text like this, uh, that we're not just dropping into it out of context. I think uh, studying this text in preparation for this week, over the last week and weeks before, uh, that it's extremely important to teach this text in context. Uh, so that we can kind of remove the distortions uh, and unbend the kinks, the so to speak, that exist with this text because it's been kicked around so much. Have you ever seen a bunch of kids, you know, when you don't have a soccer ball, and they'll just throw a Coke bottle down, you know, or a Coke can, and that's the soccer ball, you know. And this text is one of those that has just been so kicked back and forth uh, in our day that we need to kind of iron out uh, some of the wrinkles on this text. And so as we come to this text, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, down through 15, we want to keep verses 1 through 7 in sharp focus as the context for this text. Uh, And then as we start to walk through this text, just structurally, verse 8 is really an application of Paul's main idea in verses 1 through 7. Verse 8 is an application of that idea to the lives of men generally in the church. And then verses 9 through 15 is an application of that that idea to the lives of women in the life of the church. And so let's remember quickly what uh, Paul was teaching in verses 1 through 7. The main idea, remember, was to pray. Uh, Chapter 1, doctrine matters that our life and how we live is to match what the Bible says and what we profess to be true. And where does that begin? It begins with prayer and a specific kind of prayer, evangelistic prayer, that we would pray for the salvation of those around us that uh, may or that we know to be lost and need to know about Jesus Christ. And that that kind of prayer causes our hearts and our minds to disassociate or disconnect from the cares and the concerns of the world, and to connect instead to the cares and the concerns of the heart and the mind of God. It causes our 
hearts and our minds to come to match the heart and the mind of God. And his concern then that others would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And in doing that, it gives us tranquility, peace. But there's an inward and an outward quietness to our lives. Paul, remember he said, pray so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's the main thought there in verses 1 through 7. We pray evangelistically so that our hearts and minds become like the heart and mind of God, so that there's a tranquility and a quietness and a godliness and a dignity to our lives that's acceptable and good in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved. And that then becomes a part, uh, turns our heart then to an outward proclamation of the gospel. That's Paul's own testimony at the end of that text. And so from that then, we move into verse 8, Paul's application of that to generally to the life of men in the church. And you find that there uh, in verse 8, if you're looking at a New American Standard or an NIV or an NKJV, New King James Version, you'll see a therefore there in verse 8. Or if you're looking at an ESV, you'll see a then, right? Therefore, he says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. If your Bible makes paragraphs, a lot of times that paragraph will be right at the end of verses 1 through 7. It'll be included there. I, I kind of, we could have put it there as a general application of men and taken care of that last week. We were running out of time, so it's here. We may run out of time today as a result. We'll see. But it's a, it's a general application here then of the principle of praying so that we have a quiet and godly life to the life of men now specifically in the life of the church. We've been talking generalities, but now we're moving to some specifics in the life of the church. And so Paul says here then, therefore, I want, uh, just as a note of interest, that's now the word bulomai. We saw above there that God desires all men to be saved. And that was thalo. That's a word where God desires those things that he doesn't decree. And yet there's still a desire there for those things. We've now moved to the other word, bulomai, which carries more the sense of command or decree or purpose. And so Paul is now commanding, decreeing with the authority that God has given him as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, that as men gather together in the assembly of the church, he says, I want you not to just pray out there, but now men, you come to lead the church in this evangelistic praying that others would come to know Christ. That surely if this is where peace and tranquility in our lives comes from, then this is where peace and tranquility in the life of the church at least has a starting place, right? We ever in the life of the church get caught up and consumed with things that are going on out there in such a way that it upsets our peace and tranquility as a church, and it causes turmoil here, right? And, uh, and so we start here. You come. I want you to. I'm commanding the men. And it, it's a right translation there that it's men. He could have used the word anthropos, which is just people, right? But he uses the Greek word uh, for men or males. I want the men 
in every place. And by saying every place, that's a term used four times by Paul in the New Testament. And every time he uses it, he's not talking about everywhere you are, but he's talking about the gathered assembly of the church, every place that it is. And so in every place where there's the formal assembling of the church together for worship, men you come to lead that church in praying evangelistically for the souls that need salvation in your community and in your culture and across the face of the world. He says, you come. And so we're in the life of the church. He says, you pray. And that takes you back up to verse 1. It's a general term that encompasses entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. You pray in the formal gathering of the, pray, of the church. And how do you pray, he says? You pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so what you have there is you have a, here's what you do and here's what's not to be done. And this is kind of a pattern that Paul has throughout uh, the first two chapters of this letter. Here's what it looks like and here's what it doesn't look like. Right? And so... Here's what it looks like. The men are to pray, lifting up holy hands. And as you study this, the point isn't the lifting up of hands. And it's not that in this text that we're saying that now the New Testament says that every other form or posture for praying now has been removed. And the way to pray now is to lift up hands in the church. When Paul puts on this holy hands, that, that now is the emphasis there. The best understanding appears to be to me that uh, hands is often a way of speaking of one's life. And so that as you come to the assembly of the church, men, as you come to pray for the salvation of souls, you come bringing your life and it's a life that is holy. Now, this isn't the term that we normally have, which means sanctified or set apart or set Uh, separated unto the worship or the service of God. This is a different word that means unpolluted. It'd be the kind of the idea of without stain or without spot or without blemish, right? That as you come to the gathering of the church, that you come as one who, before you get to church, as a part of your day-to-day life, that you know well 1 John 1, 9. And if you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that you're marked by a, a, a repentance in your life uh, that cleanses your heart regularly. And as you come to the formal gathering to lead that gathering in prayer, that you come with a life unblemished, that you have taken your heart already before the Lord, that you're unpolluted. And so he says, you come lifting holy hands, that you come to pray, to pray for the salvation of souls, that you come as those who have already been in prayer before the Lord uh, because of God's grace in your life, repenting of sin and giving thanks to God for grace in your life. And now you're asking for God's grace to be at work in the life of others. He says, without dissension, right? Without wrath and without dissension. And so you have in this lifting up holy hands on this side, you have a life again that is a life of tranquility and quietness 
a life of godliness and dignity before the Lord from from verses 1 through 7. Paul's main concern there. That this is what marks your life, men. Not wrath and dissensions. Right? That your heart is concerned with the heart of God. That it's not concerned with things of self. Where does wrath or anger come from? Every time. Right? It Almost always, unless we're talking about righteous anger, that's a different case. But this kind of anger or wrath has to... Wanted and I didn't get and it didn't happen, right? And I get angry, or there's something I'm afraid of may happen, or something that did happen, and now I'm scared. And sometimes your first, well, your first reaction may be fear, but so often after that, what's your next reaction, right? When you can't find your child, and you're frantically running around the house. We had to have this talk with Caleb the other day. He's right there. You can ask him later. Mom and dad are both going, Caleb, where are you? And he's playing, you know, he's got a good hiding spot. And he didn't say where he was. And they had been outside. And now we don't know where our son is. Right? And now, you know, the fear starts to creep up. And then finally, dad's voice gets strident enough that he goes, oh, no, I'd better fess up. I'm here. You know, and then we have to have the talk. You know, don't do that to your mother. All right? She's scared to death. And I'm not far behind her. Right? And you might get the whooping in your life if you carry that out too far. And we just find that you're there and you've been there the whole time. All right? That oftentimes after fear, the response is anger. And so that is a, that is a self-centered self-concerned response. You don't come to church with that being your heart. And you don't come with dissensions, which is a word that we get dialogue from, or the idea that uh, to disagree or to debate or to argue that the gathered assembly of the church is not the place for those kinds of discussions. And you don't come to church with a critical heart and a critical spirit. That's not, that's not the place for that, we gather together in the assembly, right, to be nourished by the word of God. We purposefully try to pray scriptural truths, to sing scriptural truths, to preach and teach scriptural truths. And then when we do ordinances, you see scriptural truths. And so we try to fill the service of the church with the truth of God. It's not the time to come being critical, right? You want to listen with a discerning ear as anybody teaches, but not with a heart of dissension and debate and criticality. That's not what you come with. And so you need to see in that, that general application to the lives of men, that their life in the life of the assembly of the church and the formal gathering of the church is to put on display what Paul set up here, what's to come out of the life of prayer and an earnestness for the salvation of souls. It's a tranquility and a quietness within and without, and a godliness and a dignity that is concerned with the things of God. 
That's what is true of men. And then we turn to the text on women. And you need to hang on to that idea because that really, that's all Paul's trying to say as he moves through verses 9 through 15. He's saying the same thing. But there's a particular issue in the life of this church that he addresses, it would appear, that there's something going on in this church, in the culture. And so he spends a little more time addressing that, but he's still, that's exactly what he's saying, that ladies, as you come to the life of the church, that you come with a heart that is full of care and concern for what God has care and concern for. It's a heart that is at peace and tranquil before the Lord, inwardly and outwardly, and that you have a life that puts on display godliness. And that's really what this text is about. For all the other things used and abused for, that's what this text is about. And so Paul then in verse 9 turns to his application to women. He's not done with the men. And even as we walk through this text, there's tremendous implications for men in the life of the church that we'll talk about briefly at a point. And he's going to come back to men in chapter 3 and talk about elders and deacons and leadership in the life of the church. But he wants to, right here, talk to the women in the assembly or in the congregation. And we know that his thinking is linked to what he's been saying to the men in verse 8. And it's linked back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, because in verse 9, he starts off with, likewise. Right? And so similarly, or in the same manner, what I've been saying now to the men, which was a therefore from verses 1 through 7, likewise now, in the life of women, let's talk about the life of women in the gathered assembly of the church together. And that's a, that's a contextual clue, I think, that seems sometimes to be missing, because often what we do we, we have this question come up, and we just come over and dive straight into this text. And we look at it out of context. And so we don't pick up the connection to verse 8. And then we don't look back to verses 1 through 7. And we don't see what Paul's doing there. And we don't have Paul's greater concern uh, in view in this whole letter, which is that the church is a place, that is the life of the church, is lived out correctly before the Lord, that it's a place where we protect and we promote persevering faith, that it matters how the life of the church is lived out and what we do and how we do it as a matter of promoting peace and tranquility before the Lord and persevering in the faith. We have been saved, justified in Christ. We are being saved, sanctified progressively in Christ, and we will be saved one day, Scripture says, glorified in Christ. And so, as we wait for the culmination of our salvation, this is about our growth now in Christ together. And so he says, likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable or suitable, the word could be, or modest, or you might see proper, depending on what your translation is. All of those words have been used here. Adorn themselves in respectable, suitable, modest, or proper apparel. And so you're going to see Paul again start with what should be before he says what should not be, right? And so that you should have respectable or proper, modest apparel or clothing. And he says there, he qualifies this, right? Uh, modestly and discreetly. And here's your first clue. This isn't really about this, right? What you're wearing. That this is the same thing, that it's about the heart, 
that is within a woman, just as Paul has been talking about the heart that was within a man, just as Paul is talking about the heart that should be in all of us. Right? That modesty carries the idea of humility, the idea of tranquility, that you're humbled before the Lord. Right? Uh, that there's an inward fleshly appetites, right? Which by nature is undisciplined. You're going along and you see something there, and you just, oh, that tasted good. You know, and you just whatever that is, whether it's chewing, taking something into your life yourself or chewing on somebody else to exalt yourself over them, we just were instinctual, unreasoning, undisciplined beings. That's who we were. And so Paul goes right here to modesty or humility before the Lord and discipline. These are outworkings of the life that has been humbled before the Lord. And so it doesn't look, that's what it looks like. Uh, So it's not this concern, particularly with the clothing, except that clothing should express what's already true in the heart modesty and self-control and discipline. And so it's not with, he says, braided hair, nor gold, nor pearls, nor costly attire. And so remember Paul's concern through this whole letter, that truth and life match up. The truth changes us inwardly, and then how we express that truth outwardly should match what is in our hearts and what we proclaim to be true inwardly. And so it's clear here his concern here isn't to prescribe or proscribe against certain clothing, right? But he says, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire, because it apparently was a practice in the day uh, to weave uh, gold and pearls into braids or to have dresses. Uh, It's reported when you do some studies on this that even a dress for just a uh, a common person could cost a year and a half's worth of wages. And so it was a big deal to dress to the nines, so to speak, like that. Uh, and you could see how that, that doing that would be more a concern, just like wrath and dissension was for the men, how what Paul's poking at here is not to have a self-centered concern as you come to the assembly of the church. What you look like, this was a way then of Uh, showing and demonstrating your position and your power and your influence and the authority that maybe you held in the social standing and strata of the culture, right? Ladies, does that ever happen, right? Is that ever a temptation 
I know it is for me, right? That I go into some place and we can so easily, I can look at who has what on and we can start to suss things out that way. That's just a human deal, right? And so it's not to be that, right? He says, rather instead then, uh, not with costly garments, but by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And so if you're tracking with him from 2, 1 through 7, if you're tracking with him in verse 8, then really all Paul has said is the same thing here in verses 9 and 10. And that a heart that knows Christ, a heart that is humbly submitted to Christ, a heart that is proclaiming godliness and making a claim or profession of faith, right, that your life should match your proclamation and our outward aspect should match what we claim to be true inwardly. And so we are humbled before the Lord, and so we ought to be expressing that uh, in our dress or our conduct, which is true for everybody, but Paul's addressing something specific here in the life of the church. Um, uh, and so Paul's doing that uh, to point back to what he's teaching here holistically in, the, uh, in this letter. And so what's in our heart affects our life. And what's in our heart as it's expressed in our life comes to have a bearing within the life of the church, right? And so this cultural issue outside the church is making its way apparently into the life of the church. And it's not just a matter of dress or conduct, but apparently there's an issue going on of leadership and teaching. And so he moves on He's not able to leave it just there in verses 9 and 10, but he has to move on from that general statement to a more specific issue within the life of the church in verses 11 and 12. And so he moves on to dress, address a woman's participation in the formal assembly of the church in regards to teaching in the life of the church, verse 11 and 12. And he says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And you see there the same pattern, verse 11 and verse 12, as we've already seen. The positive statement in verse 11, here's what it should be. And the negative statement in verse 12, here's what it should not be, right? And so in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissive, submissiveness. Now, this is almost the most misunderstood statement in this whole text, right? This is almost the most abused statement in this whole text. And so let's take this just one piece or part at a time, albeit quickly. First, you want to note, I think, the radical nature of Paul's statement here. Uh, one of the things you do is you kind of pull a, a statement like this apart. You look at it and say, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. He's got a couple of qualifiers on there that in our day get in the way of the whole discussion. Quietly, so let's pull that out for a second. And with all or with entire submissiveness, and let's pull that out for a second. And let's see that the core statement here by Paul is that a woman must what? Receive instruction or learn, right? That right there is already a radical statement for Paul's day. That in Jewish culture and Roman culture, that there was not just a, an uncaring attitude towards whether or not women learned, but it was often avoided. Teach then women. They were not present often in the synagogues, and they were not in the schools of learning, in the halls of 
learning and instruction and debate. And so this is a radical statement already, just at its core. In the life of the church, things are changing, right? Because of uh, Genesis 2, that man and woman were created equally in the image of God, right? Because of Galatians 3, verse 28, that there's neither male nor female when it comes to salvation in Christ. We are co-heirs together. That women must receive instruction. That's the positive statement. Now then we have those two qualifiers there that are so often misunderstood that women should receive instruction quietly. Now I was a teacher in school. And so if I'm just looking at the English here and I'm saying, what does quietly mean? I taught for three or four years. And, you know, what did we say all the time in our, to our classes? And there's several teachers. Quiet, right? Which means zip it, right? Do not speak. I'm speaking, right? That is not what the verse here at its root is. It's the same word that was used up in uh, verse 2, that so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Tranquility being an inward at peaceness or tranquility or no disturbances, and quiet being an outward tranquility, no disturbances outwardly, right? So that as you come to the assembly of the church, Paul says, that a woman should learn and receive instruction quietly with a tranquility, an outward tranquility that belies an inward tranquility that is evidence of modesty and discipline of knowing Christ and a heart that is at peace and one with the heart, the mind of God, right? We haven't heard yet exactly why, but he's putting the principle into place. So quietly, peaceably, with a tranquility, and he says with entire submissiveness, it's the same word or root that we find so often in Paul's writings, it simply means to align oneself under. Usually, it's to align ourselves under Christ or to align ourselves under the will of God. And so here it's to align oneself under the authority that's been established in the church, right? That's not something that's true just for ladies. That's true for all of us, right? That as we come to the gathering of the life of the church, that there's an established authority in the life of the church. Talk about that a little more in a minute, and we'll talk about it specifically next week and the week to follow. We talk about elders and deacons. But that you come submitted to the authority of God and God's authority where it has been put in place in the life of the church. That's what this is. Tranquility and peaceableness of heart so that there's a submittedness to the authority that's in the church. Uh, If there's a little bit of the uh, silence uh, definition that comes through with quiet, I I think it would just go back exactly to verse 8 in context without wrath and without particularly dissension. The same idea without debate, right? without disagreement within the formal assembly of the church. That's not the place to debate, disagree, be critical. Right, that this is what Paul's driving at here. And so let's hear, hear what he's saying rather than hearing everything that has been alleged 
to be said from this text, right? Or to hear all the different ways that this text has been misused in the life of the church, because to be sure, this text has been misinterpreted and then misapplied, and it's been abused by men to assert authority in the life of the church or over women that should never, in a manner that should never have taken place. What we can't do with this text, though, is say because sin has entered in, that this text, this text now uh, goes away, right? That sin means that we can never have a right application, implementation, or use of authority in the church, and because of that, we're not going to pay attention to this text, right? We can't do that. We want to hear what Paul's saying from this text and then apply it to our lives and to the life of the church. And so Paul is saying here much what he's already been saying, come with peace in the heart. Come receive instruction and learn and come align yourselves under the authority of the church as, it's, as God's authority is expressed through the teaching of the word, which is to be done, as we'll see in chapter 3, by qualified elders in the life of the church. That's what that text is saying to us. That's the positive charge here. The negative thing, that's what it looks like. Here's what it doesn't look like. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And that quiet is the same use of the word that we just saw and that we saw back up in verse 2. And so Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. Now, many in our day reject the correct understanding of this text as patriarchal, as chauvinistic, as oppressive, or as an abuse of right? And some want to therefore define authority here as some version of abuse of authority. I don't allow a woman to teach or to abuse authority over a man. And so that it reads in a manner that allows a woman to teach authoritatively the truths of Scripture in the life of the church. But there's a couple of observations when you do a deep dive study on this that stick out and that, that stand against that taking things that way. The first is there's 100 instances, 52 within the New Testament, 48 outside of the New Testament in Greek literature of the day, where you have this grammatical construction that exists here, uh, that not to teach or to exercise authority, coupled with a couple of words and verbs. It's a very specific construction, right? The point is that every time you find it in all hundred instances in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, that both things that are connected by the or are seen together as both positive or both negative, right? So when you try to look at it and say that, uh, I don't allow a woman to teach a positive thing, to teach the truths of Scripture, or to, and then you want to make it a negative interpretation, to abuse authority. Now you got one positive, one negative. You can't do that. They're either both positive or they're both negative. Uh, the, other, uh, and the other observation, and this happens quite a bit, that we're looking into a dictionary or a Greek word dictionary, which we'll call a lexicon, and just like when you look into Webster's Dictionary and you look in there and you're looking up a word and how many definitions can you find? Uh, and just for taking a quiz, has anyone looked and what was like the most definitions you ever found for a word? Does anyone remember off the top of your head? Like you always find two or three definitions for a word almost always, but is it more? 
Anyone want to fess up that you're a Webster's, you know, lover? No? All right. You could find seven or eight or 12 definitions sometimes in there for a word, the different nuances for how it's used. And so there is, if you just go to look at the lexicon, there is a, a definition for this word authority where it is, it comes to be used in the sense of to abuse authority. The problem is we have no evidence of the use of that word that way before the 10th century A.D. And so it's listed in the dictionary as a possible definition for the word, but it's not a use of the word for a thousand years, almost 900 years after the writing of the letter. And so that's a fallacy that jumps in a lot of times in our study. Oh, here's a, I like that definition. I'll squeeze that one in there because that makes it say what I want it to say rather than saying what it says. And so it's a positive teaching in the life of the church of truths, and it's a positive exercising of authority. It's just simply to have authority in the life of the church that Paul's talking about here. And he says, I don't allow or I do not permit. And here's something that kind of maybe cracks the door open for us, why Paul's addressing this to this end in the life of this church, uh, is because this word, when it's used in the New Testament, always talks about permitting someone to do something they want to do. And so I permit you, go do the thing you want to do, or I don't permit you, you can't do the thing you want to do. And so apparently in the life of this church, he had not just a cultural issue maybe of manner of dress and a self-selfish or self-centered concern entering into the life of the church, but you had a group of ladies that wanted to take on the authoritative position of authoritative teaching of Scripture in the life of the church. And Paul says categorically, I do not allow that to take place. But he sees that as a lack of tranquility in the heart, because he says, but to remain tranquil, quiet, humble, right? That the godliness we profess, the faith we profess, continues to be manifest outwardly in our lives. So verse 13 and 14 then, he has to substantiate why then it would be uh, quietness and tranquility no disturbance for a woman to come rather than to teach, but to receive instruction with quietness and all submissiveness or to be submitted to the authority of the church. Why is that the right thing rather than the thing they want, this group wants to do, right? And so the question now is how is this, and this is something that's shown up in Paul's day already. It's definitely a discussion that we have going on in our day. And so today we ask, you hear questions like, how is this not something that is a relic of the past? How is this not something that's rooted in a cultural view that we no longer hold to? Uh, How can this be anything other than what we've mentioned, some form of patriarchalism, chauvinism, oppression, or abuse of authority? Or the more recent question, if you're going to teach this text and apply this text this way, how can I feel safe coming to this church after this sermon this morning? Right? Those are pressing questions. And so how do we answer them? And Paul goes in verse 13 to argue from creation. He goes in verse 14 to argue from the fall. He says in verse 13, for it was for his explanation, reason, or basis for It was Adam who was first created, 
and then Eve. It's a simple argument. It's one that we're familiar with, but it has far-reaching implications for the life of the church and for family and for marriage. The idea being that God in Genesis 1 and 2 created man and woman, and we know there that God created male and female after he created everything else. That male and female humanity was God's pen, was his crowning act of creation, right? With every other living thing, when God creates, God apparently, as we have the wording in the text, creates them simultaneously. And not just species by species, but all the species at once. It talks about him creating, right, the plants and the trees. And then it talks about him creating the fish of the sea, let there be. And then he talks about him creating the birds of the air, let there be the birds of the air. And then the beast of the field and the herds. And then the creeping, the things we love, the creeping and the crawling things, the insects and the bugs, right? And he just let there be this whole group and woo, they're all there, Okay. But with humanity, it's, it's different. We get a, a closer view on that. And there's not just the aspect where God speaks all living things into creation, and then God puts his hands on the earth and dirt and creates man. That's one thing that's true, that sets man apart from the rest of creation. And then God gives man breath and spirit. But God creates their uh, Adam first when you look at Genesis 2. And Adam is alone. And he's alone for an unspecified amount of time. And he's alone for a purpose, right? That he'll come to know that there's nothing in creation to be his helpmeet or his partner. And so as God brings every animal on the face of the planet before Adam and he names all of them and he gets to the end of it and you get that saying that there was none, no animal, none found to be his helpmeet or his partner because God has called Adam, humanity, to steward creation, to be God's vice regent over creation, to be the manager of creation physically on site for the God of heaven who's created all of it. And so Adam has a monumental responsibility and he needs a partner. And no partner was found in all of creation. And so God puts Adam to sleep. We know the story takes a rib. He creates Eve. And I, I love that when Adam opens his eyes and sees her and what he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's a, that's a statement of cherishing and worth and worthiness. For this reason, a man shall leave his parents and she'll leave her parents and the two will become one flesh together. A unity and a oneness. That, that is a precious text to me. You know, Tommy, whenever he teaches that one, says Adam opened his eyes, Tommy Nelson at Denton looks and saw Eve and goes, whoa, man. And that's how she got her name. Right, um, <laughs> she's beautiful to behold, uh, and so you see from Genesis one that God creates them male and female in the image of God. Catch this, He creates them. There's an absolute equality between man and woman in terms of essence and nature and humanity, and yet there's a differentiation of role 
a distinction of role in Genesis 2 that God gives the charge to Adam as the head and the leader to steward creation, and then Eve is to be his partner. And they're to be partnered in that endeavor together, but Adam's the head and Eve's his partner. And so men and women are equal in nature or essence and humanity, but God has ordained a differentiated role when it comes to marriage, family, and the life of the church. And this really at its heart, I find this to be a profound truth. All this is, is that God who created all things cannot help but reflect his own nature in what he's created. That when we start to study who God is as the Trinitarian God, that God is Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons, one God. It's a divine mystery, right? And yet, those three persons, it's not part of God, part of God, part of God, but they are God. They are co-eternal, we say. They've always existed together. They're co-essential. They have the same nature, right? That they are co-equal, that they are co-divine. And yet when each person within the Trinity interacts in human history, specifically to accomplish redemption, there's a differentiation of activity. The Father decrees, the Son enacts and carries those out. And the Spirit is the power of God or alternatively the presence of God when those events are taking place. And that doesn't lessen the Spirit as God or the Son as God under the Father. It's not a subordinating thing as to their essence and who they are. And so to differentiate roles is not to lessen one under or one or make one over the other. It's simply a reflection of who God is. And so this is the basis of Paul's argument. And again, here's the positive and here's the negative. This is something that just jumped in this study that I think was tremendously helpful. Why is it this way in the life of the church? Because God created, ordained, and ordered it to be this way as an expression of the glory of God. And so, but it got messed up. And that's verse 14, that it got upended. That when Paul comes to verse 14 and says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman uh, being deceived who fell into transgression. This is not a finger pointing verse. How often have you read it that way? Or you've heard it that way? Well, who fell? Eve, you. I'm pointing at my wife right now, okay? Not the rest of you, right? You fell. It's your fault, woman, right? That's not how this, that's not what Paul's doing here. The greatest irony to me for any man, especially, but anyone who would try to take that tact on this verse, that that's what this verse says, and that's therefore why we can't trust this verse, whether they're a Christian teaching it or somebody outside the church trying to undermine it, right, is that you're doing exactly what Adam did when God came to confront him. You're pointing the finger, which is, not a good thing, right? That God comes walking in the garden saying, where are you? Adam says, well, I, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, the fact that he knows he's naked, let him know something's wrong. Because at the end, when Adam sees Eve and they're one flesh, it says they were naked and unashamed. 
They had no reason to be ashamed in each other's presence, just in the glory of how God made them. But now something's wrong. Who told you you were naked? God says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? And that's where Adam goes, well, she gave me from the tree and I ate it, right? It's not a good moment for Adam. And so this verse has too often been used to teach that women are lesser or that women have a lesser position because it was woman who was deceived in the fall. And I don't think that's what Paul's putting this in here for. That's not his point as he's talking about the roles of men and women in the church as a part of lives of tranquility and the life of the church having a tranquility because it's ordered the way that God has intended it to be ordered. Right? His point is instead that the narrative of the fall shows Satan coming to Eve to deceive her, and in deceiving her, he upends all the authority structures that God has put into place. Remember what Satan says to Eve? It's good for eating, and it looks good, and it's good to what? Make one wise like God. Oh, that sounds good. And in picking that fruit and eating that fruit, there's an upending. There's a usurping of the place of God. And in usurping the place of God, we just didn't usurp some of the authority structures God put in place, but we took all of it and turned it upside down. Right, when you go to 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, Paul says, just from creation, we know God, the Father, is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of his wife. Right? But that's the order that God has established in terms of differentiation of role. And so that what happens in the fall is Satan deceives Eve purposefully. I don't think because she's a weaker vessel. I really think purposely to upend primarily the authority structures that God has put in place. And usurping God's place, she's usurping also Adam's place of authority as her husband. That's the point of Paul's statement here. And then when she brings of the tree to Adam in the moment when he should have led and when he should have said, no, this is what God said, what did he do? He caved and he followed. And so instead of leading, he let her lead, right? And so the authority structures were upended. Adam abdicates leadership to Eve and man together, Adam and Eve, usurp the place of God in their lives. And to be honest, this is still one of the greatest issues plaguing marriages and the life of the church today. Right, man, this is a text Paul's talking to ladies, but when you start understanding what Paul's driving at here, you realize this is still really a text about the men and who we are in our marriages and in the life of the church. One of the greatest issues of our day is men that will not lead spiritually in their marriages and in their homes and in the life of the family and therefore cannot and will not lead in the life of the church. There is a dearth of leadership. And you see it happen all the time that we will say to ourselves, well, I haven't done it yet. Now I'm hearing you say that, that I should do it. What's that look like? Pray with your wife at night. 
pray with your kids at night. I know the same temptation to this. And there are stretches, I'm sad to say, where I have looked and said, I fell off the wagon. I'm not praying and I'm not caring the way I should. And so what I do instead of like, okay, dust it off and get back in there. Let's pray at night. What do you do? You don't do it. Why? Because I'm unworthy. And there's this little voice in the heart of so, in the mind of so many men that say that I haven't done it. I can't do it. How dare I try to do it? My wife won't even respect me if I try. And you know what? The, that's a lie from Satan. And I've had this conversation with Nikki, right? That, the, that if I just do it, that her respect for me is immediate, right? And her love for me because of that is immediate. The problem, men, when we don't do it is it makes it hard for our wives to respect us. And it opens the door to bitterness and to resentment and things that build up over time. If you don't believe me, talk to your wives at lunch today. I challenge you. And give them the opportunity to speak directly to your face and tell you how hard it is to love a man they don't respect. We're called to lead spiritually in our marriages, in our families, and in the church. It's a calling. And Satan has gone to work at it in the fall and upended it, and he's completely upended it in our culture. And so when you have a people that profess faith in Christ and are ordering their lives under Christ, you return to how God has established things to be, right? Our church will be limited in its growth by the number of men that we have that can lead and lead well and that can teach and lead and shepherd and disciple and lead other men to do those things. We'll be hamstrung by lack of leadership. We need men, men, biblical men. We can't stay here with what happened in the fall. We have to right the ship. Paul's saying here the ship was upended and it's in threat of being sunk right here. That's what Paul's teaching. He's not pointing to women as lesser or any of that. <clears throat> the woman was deceived, right? When we go to the narrative, we understand that Adam abdicated leadership, right? And this is still something that plagues us in the life of the church. And so for the life of marriage, family, for the church to be what it should and for the glory of God to be made known through a peaceableness and a tranquilityness and a godliness that's to be known from us. We have to reorder things the way God has ordered it to be. And in the life of the church, he has established elders that are men, right, to do that leading. And this is something, again, as I've talked with Nikki, that I, I just know the struggle. I watch her manage logistics and make decisions and multitask and do all these things. And there's a lot of ways that I look and I go, man, I, I think she could do a better job than I could, right? But in our marriage, for me to lead, which doesn't mean I do it all, but for us, for me to open the conversation, for us to talk through those things together, for me to bring scripture to bear and ask her to bring scripture to bear, for us to decide together but I'm fostering those conversations and discussions and decisions, right? That's for my sanctification that I don't abdicate leadership. It's for her sanctification that she 
follows leadership, and it's for our sanctification that we figure out how to do that well in our marriage. And it's the same thing in the life of the church. And so if you understand all of that, this is not such a hard text, other than the ways it's talked about in our culture and the ways then we struggle with it in just in terms of living this out. Because to be sure, as I lead in my marriage, I make mistakes. To be sure, as I lead in the life of the church, I make mistakes. And so I'm thankful for elders and men around me that look at me and say, hey, stop it. Or hey, get after it. Right? And sometimes that's what my wife does for me. Hey, quit it. Hey, I need you to get after it. Right? Because I'm sensing the desire to fill the vacuum you're leaving there for me to fill. And I'll do it. Right? So that's what Paul's doing with this text. And we'll close just with this. This is the most, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, This is the most misunderstood statement in the whole text is verse 15. If you want to come talk particulars, let's talk later. Right? But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. A couple of things about this. Your version may say a woman because the verb there is singular, right? He's talking about women though, and we know that because he says if they continue. The way a lot of people read this is if their children continue, right, in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, but that adds a condition to your salvation that's based upon someone else, right? Which is you can't add that back to salvation. So it's not about the children. It's about talking about a woman and then women in general. And all Paul's saying here is, if you persevere in the faith, if you continue in faithfulness before the Lord, that's all he's saying. He's saying you'll be saved, preserved is the word for salvation or deliverance. You'll be saved through the bearing of children. And he's using childbirth as a thing unique to womanhood to stand for all of womanhood. He's not saying that you're saved by having kids because then you have the woman who's barren and she can't have kids. And so he's not restricting it only to those who have kids. When you take it that way, then you got to force this thing on there where you can have spiritual children. You've probably heard that. That's not the sense in the, that Paul's going for here. It's, it's just that you're saved by childbearing He's probably, as he's going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 in the fall, he's probably doing a little bit of a a circumstantial play, right? That it was the vessel, the woman was the vessel through whom the fall came by way of deception. But hallelujah, it's through a woman that the child that will come and bring salvation to all men will be born that there's a significance there. But he's using this most directly to say, this is something unique to womanhood, and it stands for biblical then womanhood. And what does that look like? Continuing in faith and love and sanctity, and this is now the word for separated unto God in service and worship with self-restraint or discipline. That's Paul's whole point, really, in 9 through 15, right? that we pray up there so that our hearts look like the hearts of God and there's an inward and an outward tranquility 
and that our lives begin to match the truth we proclaim. And that all Paul's done here is say the same thing. Verse 8 applied to men, and now verse 9 to 15 applied to ladies. Right? The, we are to persevere in godliness. That's a mark of true conversion. And so the life of the church is shaped how God has set it up. And we're not to buck how that has been set up, but we're to submit our lives to the life of the church, men and women, all of us together. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then Jared's going to come and close us today. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for uh, the fact that by your spirit, we can know even the deep things of your word. I thank you for men and women who've studied your word so faithfully and so earnestly that have produced their studies and writings so clearly. God, I'm thankful even for the ways that a text uh, has been taken erroneously. God, for it helps sharpen our thinking and our understanding of the text. God, may we, as we go out today, God, be encouraged by this text, nourished by this text. Might it produce in us what it's intended to produce, which is a humility before you and a peaceableness and a tranquility of heart. God, as we know your authority in the life of the church as you've established it, as each one of us, as we come to the assembly and the formal gathering of the church, which is what this text is about, as we submit our lives to the life of the church, as we gather together here, as we do on Sunday mornings. And Father, that that would give us uh, just a, a place, not of lack of safety, but God of safety. God, as we know that we're coming to you and coming before you in the way that you've called us to. God, that we would be nourished together by your word. That your glory your goodness, God, all of your attributes would increasingly abound in us, as Paul's concern in this letter is, that they would be made known through us, your people, to those around us. God, for you desire all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so may our lives, God, bear those truths out. Change us inwardly and let that conform us within and without, to Jesus Christ, that he might be made known from us. In Jesus' name we pray these things together. Amen.